Welcome to Podrick the Podcast, the incremental podcast that adds even more value. I'm your host, Maor Sadra, and this is our latest series, We're All Mad Here. In this series, I interview friends from all around the industry talking about trends going on, changes happening, and those that are about to come, and so on. The interviews are always pretty casual, making the conversation very natural and unscripted. In today's episode, I had a great time talking with Malik from Moshi Kids. Mali comes with a ton of experience in user acquisition, having previously worked at King.com and Apple Arcade. Having the experience of doing UA for both casual freemium as well as subscription apps, Malik has some really unique views over marketing. I enjoyed speaking with Malik and hope you'll enjoy listening to this episode. Hello, Malik. How are you? Hey, Maur. I'm great. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Where are you based these days? I am based in surprisingly sunny London right now. Okay. Yeah, um, it's surprisingly sunny Berlin as well these days. Yeah, I, I hope that this is a uh, signs to come for the summer ahead. I don't know. Yesterday was four degrees and hailing and uh, no, it was it was sunny, but it was like the definition of shitty weather. Just just keeping us on our toes. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Um, so Malik, do you want to introduce yourself and give um, like a lengthy background to how you got to where you got? I mean, lengthy is a dangerous question. With me, <laughs> but, um, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, listener to the pod. So uh, I've been looking forward to this for, for a while. Um, I am I'm Malik. I'm head of user acquisition at a company called Moshi Kids. Uh, we're an app-based platform that helps families and children improve their emotional well-being, um, improve sleep, help them focus, and pretty much everything to do with kind of the emotional learning and development process for children. Um, I've been at the company for about six months now. Uh, before that, I've worked at a bunch of different places, but um, spent most of my career at King and Apple. Um, so kind of started in the performance marketing path at Apple, uh, working kind of in a mixture of different roles. Um, from analytics to kind of live game strategy and pretty much everything across the performance marketing team. Um, and then worked at Apple where I was uh, kind of leading the performance marketing strategy for Apple Arcade uh, for everything outside of the US. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's long enough. I have lots of other stuff which I can tell you, but um, that's a bit about how I got to where I am today. Cool, cool. And um, in your King days, did you work on a specific title? So actually, I basically joined King as an intern, actually. Um, so I started pretty much working across all of our live games. Um, kind of the first thing that I really started working on was how we went from just focusing on user acquisition to really building out a reactivation strategy. You know, obviously, we had a, a massive pool of lapsed players at King. So how we basically, you know, uh, brought them back into the ecosystem and tried to engage them across the board. Um, so not really focusing on one specific game, but more kind of initiatives that helped uh, bridge kind of the gap between, you know, what we were doing on, on Candy and some of the other titles. Cool. Cool. Nice. Um, so we have a generic question that we ask in this um, series that you might have already heard and would love to kind of get to know your opinion on this one. Is marketing an art or a science? Uh, so it's funny. So, I mean, I listened to the pod, like I said, um, I, I would say it's more of an art. And I know that most people actually will say one of two things when you ask them this question. Uh, they'll either say, oh, it's both, uh, or they'll say it's more of a science. So I actually think it's an art, um, and I'll tell you why. Um, the reality is, you know, if you, you can think about it kind of like you think about photography, right? Um, I can take a picture of something or someone, you know, 
I can learn the best settings to use on my phone or on my camera and try to optimize that as much as possible. But that doesn't make it art. And now someone else can come and actually take a beautiful photograph that um, is completely different to what I've taken. And, you know, the, the, that turns it into something that's more artistic. I think it's the same with marketing. You know, a lot of us uh, can really follow the established best practices in the industry. We can optimize as much as we want, but the reality is it all has to start from somewhere. And I think that's the artistic side. If we were to build everything from scratch, there wouldn't be any marketing without someone going through the artistic process of building things from the ground up. Nice. By the way, it's like it's it's um, it's cool that you use photography as a as an analogy. You know, I recently went to a couple of. I actually do enjoy going to photography galleries here, and I'm I would say an amateur photographer. And indeed, I know the settings, but when you go to a gallery at the end and you look at some of the um, like the best pictures there, they completely break the pattern. It's exactly the same with marketing, though, isn't it? Right. Like, um, if you look at you know, ninety five percent of the advertisers out there. You know, the vast majority of people are doing pretty much the same thing in their campaign setup. But then someone will come along, do something completely different, and that's when everyone takes notice, right? So I think, yeah, photography is a great example. The other one, which is maybe a, a bit more drastic, is like, you know, um, kind of art forgery. Like, you know, if, if you have someone who's an incredible art forger, are they still making art if they're just copying someone else's painting? Or I don't know. I mean, they're, they're technically equally as good of a painter. If they can make a great forgery but are they as good of an artist that's a really 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 good uh, analogy and you know it's like so going to the next question and often by the way i'm i do interview in this series people who are fairly new to the industry and i think one is related because often you have people who are new to this industry yet they are very successful and i think one of the reasons why they're very successful is that they don't even know how to forge someone else's art mm. They just, you know, brush. I think there's like a few things in that, right? I think sometimes it's very easy to, when you're very experienced in the industry, you get stuck in this process where you're effectively optimizing towards a local maximum, right? Like you followed this one development path and you're making it, you're making steps forward every day, but you're only going as far as that path can take you. I think when people come into the industry with a fresh perspective, they're not thinking about it in terms of, oh, how do I build on this set of best practices? They're thinking about who they are as a consumer, what would resonate with them, who their audience is, and really going back to kind of the first principles of marketing. And I think that's, you know, it's something I think about a lot and pretty much everything I do is if I were to start from scratch today, no playbook, what would I do? What, what are the uh, principles of marketing? Maybe let's, let's tackle that, uh, that one. Uh, you're putting me on the spot. I mean, I didn't study marketing. I kind of fell into the industry. But so I, I think if you if you think about it very simply, without taking any sort of academic approach to this, right? Um, when you're marketing a product, there's three th things that are really important. Who is the audience? What is the product? And what's the value proposition for that specific audience? And third, what's the story that you tell to tie all three of those things together, right? And I think without any of those three things working well, uh, you can't market a product to an audience in a positive way. Um, and I think that's really what we need to kind of get back to a point that we're doing as performance marketers. Hey, you know, actually, I'm just, just, just in the process of uh, finalizing another white paper. It's the fifth one. And this one is titled the Cross-Platform Marketer Survival Guide. And it actually does touch 
like the same points. It's uh, the question of the why, okay? Why should my audience care about what I'm doing, okay? And the more you force yourself to ask these basic questions, I think the better you become as marketer. And I think when you um, kind of like get to get too used to the uh, routine, um, I don't think even like I perceive our industry as having any routine, but if you become like a routine, like, okay, I know what I'm doing. I'm not know what campaign I'm going to open on Facebook and what uh, strategy I'm going to use. I'm just going to put my money there and like, let it work. Um, you kind of lose touch, especially since our industry changes all the time. Yeah. I mean, completely. And I think that over the past few years, maybe we weren't forced to do that as much as marketers, kind of a lot of the things were actually solved for us. We didn't really have to think about who the audience was because everything was algorithmic. We basically just had to make sure that things were being tracked correctly uh, and events were being sent in the right way. Um, we didn't even really need to think about the story that we're telling because ultimately, you know, the vast majority of performance ads were heavily focused on you know, gameplay, if you're in a gaming app, or really just focused on how the app works. So you're right. I think um, it's about habit. It's about going through that process consistently of saying, why should people actually try my product? By the way, it's funny. In Nebo from Zynga, actually, one, in one of the conversations we had, um, labeled himself as a data plumber. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear a bit more about that. Why, why a plumber? Oh, because it's like, you know, you just keep connecting the pipe. I think that was kind of like the the way to 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 have maybe even like profile the position of UA up to about a year and a half ago, because indeed you just needed to make sure that all the postbacks are being sent correctly, because what the platforms wanted is for you to throw money at them. And then we'll just, you know, they're going to do the heavy lifting algorithmically. You know what? And that, that's what brings it back to that question of art or science, right? Maybe the answer is it used to be more of a science. It used to be all about the technical aspect. And gradually we're reverting back to that kind of core truth that you know, marketing at its core is an art. And even if user acquisition for the past few years has been more of a science, you know, it all comes back to, to the artistic form of marketing. You know, I, I don't know why. So I much prefer the arty part of it, even though, if, like, you know, I'm CEO for a data science company who does incrementality. So you would you would have imagined that I would probably like opt for the science part. But I, like, I think I also think my, of myself as a consumer, as a and as a user, and this level of like minority report. Hello, Mr. Anderson. Here's the uh, do you like the pants? Uh, I really don't want that I'd, I'd rather explore and like be exposed to new things because i'm eclectic and i think most mm. users in a way are eclectic like you cannot really profile an individual to the point where well these other users are doing this so you're likely going to be wanting to do that uh, i agree completely it's also like it does get a bit boring right and i think you're right that the fun part is when you deviate beyond the status quo beyond the, the great, like perfectly paved road ahead of you. Um, and you kind of veer off into, into the trails and you have to find your own way. Yeah, we're becoming very philosophical. Uh, um, this, is, this is how I speak. So, uh, yeah, no, me too, me too, me too. Um, now, you know, you, you, so you, you started as an intern in the industry. If you needed to give a piece of advice to someone entering the space these days, what, what would it be? Wow. Um, that's a really tough question because I think, you know, just like every user is different, you know, every person's different. So I think the, the only really like 
broad generalizable piece of advice that I found and you know, maybe this is actually more for someone one or two years into their career is just constantly, basically just constantly try to find opportunities to make yourself uncomfortable. Um, I think that the way that we grow uh, in this profession is by finding opportunities to challenge ourselves. And, you know, if you take the, the comfortable path and you're constantly just building, um, you know, the same skill set, following, you know, the same path that everyone else in the industry does, you're never really going to build, you know, that's certain thing that makes you different. Um, trying to find you know, opportunities to join teams which have a different mindset to you, work on projects with people who disagree with you, um, or you know, challenge yourself to you know, learn a different aspect of marketing that you don't touch in your day-to-day. -day. Um, that's the kind of stuff that really propels you forward. So um, you know, I definitely think that uh, it's very easy to stay and kind of follow a path in terms of what's comfortable, but um, the rewards from making yourself uncomfortable, at least in my experience, have been pretty great. But by the way, how, how important do you think is it to join a successful company? Like you joined King, okay? Um, King was already pretty successful, I would say. Do you think it's oh, important? For sure. Do you think it's important to join a company that is like well known or like is doing very well um, as a first role? I think there's benefits from both, right? Um, you know, I think, first of all, I think King was probably the best performance marketing school I could have joined. Um, I learned so much in the time that I was there. Um, I learned from, you know, people who I firmly believe were some of the best in the industry um, at the time when I was there. And, you know, it gave me a, an amazing on-ramp. I remember um, someone I was working with at the time, um, kind of one of our, our partners, said something to me during my, like, third week as an intern there. And he basically said, you're never going to have an opportunity as good as this to experiment yourself, right? To, you're never going to have the type of budgets and the freedom to run pretty much any test that you want to run um, at another company. And King is really the perfect place to have that freedom to explore. Now, on the other hand, you also kind of get a similar freedom from joining a startup, right? I think there's a lot of benefits from joining a small company where you're forced to try different things, where there's no playbook. Um, so again, I don't know if it's important necessarily to join an established company. I think it's important to join a company where you're not just going to follow someone else's playbook and instead you're actually going to test new things and push the boundaries yourself. Cool. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. I think some of it, I don't even remember who was I speaking with that we agree that like to, to, to land a job where your company culture, or at least even the manager um, you have directly is giving you that space um, is very important. Um, it's really hard to like test it before you join though. Oh, it's, I mean, it's impossible. I think I had the best uh, situation, right? Where I joined as an intern, I was supposed to be there for about uh, two and a half months. Um, and I basically got kind of an extended trial period where, you know, I wasn't planning originally to join them full time. Um, I actually had like a job lined up in a completely different sector. And, you know, I had that opportunity to really test the waters and see whether it was for me. Um, and I knew pretty much instantaneously. I knew after like three, four weeks or something like that. So um, maybe that's the other piece of advice for, for people entering the industry is, you know, internships can be a really great opportunity, not just to create exposure for yourself, but also to try to understand what type of people do you like to work with? Yeah, I agree. Now let's uh, shift. Um, so 
our world is becoming a bit more private, um, privacy first world, as we call it. Um, do you uh, see it as more of a curse or more of a blessing? Um, well, uh, first of all, um, you know, I think it's a really clear answer for me. I think it's a blessing. Um, now, if we just think you know, outside of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis and we just ask ourselves the question of, should we encourage a more privacy-safe approach to marketing? You know, I, I think it's really tough to disagree with the fact that there is probably, we were veering too far in the wrong direction when it came to how privacy was managed over the past few years. So I think it's a blessing. However, you know, it's a pretty uncomfortable period for a lot of advertisers. We have to rebuild um, a tremendous amount of the critical ad infrastructure that had been built over the past 10 years, right? Um, companies need to completely revert what they've been doing and start from scratch in a lot of instances. So I think it's a, it's a period of friction, but all in all, um, absolutely, I think it's a blessing. By the way, it's like I often, like when I ask this question, I, I think I really do ask for the advertiser side, but on the monetization side, I don't really think about it that much. On the monetization side, it's a curse, right? I mean, it's, I think it's probably very tough to, to say that it's a blessing uh, on the monetization side. But on the other hand, again, you know, maybe it helps people, you know, build products that are really much more about driving engagement rather than just optimizing towards, you know, the, the type of things which existing monetization infrastructure was built on. Um, so yeah, it's probably, you know, even more of a, more of a curse for, on, for the monetization side, but it does create, you know, every, every period like this where things get broken down creates an opportunity for us to rebuild things from the ground up and hopefully we rebuild it in, in a better way. You know, I, I did interview a couple of like um, media platform to this series. So I spoke with Unot, who's managing Verve. I spoke with Tim, who's running Kaizen. I also spoke with Jordi, the CEO of Smartex. And I was really grateful that they all gave me a very honest answer. Like, can, a, can an ad platform ensure incrementality? And they all basically do understand that they can't. So if you cannot ensure um, without any user level data, it's extremely difficult to actually do well for your customers uh, who are indeed advertisers. So again, you become a bit more distant um, and trying to basically do your best when it comes to contextual and so on. But your like a lot of value is being uh, destroyed there, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, again, this, this goes a little bit back to what we were saying before. Um, you know, is it their job to, to create that incremental value or is it our job as advertisers, right? Like ultimately, I think a lot of the onus has been placed on these platforms to do that in the past, but surely, you know, what they've built is really the infrastructure, the tools, the mechanisms for us to deploy our own tactics, our own strategies. And that's where we should be driving you know, the value. Like ultimately it shouldn't be their problem whether or not I'm creating value, that should be my problem. But I think that the, the playing field was completely unleveled, like to the point where you could throw any amount of budget on Facebook with any random app you had, and it worked, okay? It worked, it generated incremental results thanks to lookalikes. Yeah. It, it just worked amazingly, let's face it. And it reached a point where if you are an advertiser, you are comparing everything else to Facebook. And if it's not generating results as good as Facebook, which has enormous of enormous amounts of user level data, it's just 
not cutting it to the point where, like, you know, we've seen many advertisers shifting 70, 80% of their spend to Facebook, if not even sometimes more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's be honest, they built a, a pretty powerful algorithm um, and all of the conditions were right for, for Facebook to become, you know, the dominant ad platform, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, coming back to whether or not this is a blessing or a curse, you know, creates a more level playing field. That's a positive thing in my eyes, right? Um, but to be honest, I mean, one thing you said that, you know, you could put any amount of spend into Facebook and it would generate incremental value. I, I don't know if I fully uh, okay. see it that way, like okay. attributed value for sure. Um, but I think we, I remember at King, we saw some pretty interesting trends where over time, you know, it was really obvious that we started to, um, okay. I, I studied economics. So I always think about things in, in that mindset, but you know, the marginal return that we got on every additional dollar spent started to decrease quite obviously over time. So um, yes, you might still be generating like a positive ROAS, but um, the, the marginal profit that you're getting on every dollar definitely was, was decreasing as you scaled up. Yeah. And by the way, it's like, I think you know this very well. King was definitely one of the companies that inspired me to start Incremental because uh, Having worked at Uplift and King was a fairly large customer for our, I knew that King used to do a hardcore incrementality test once a year, stopping most channels, reactivating them one by one. And what Richard, their former CMO, once told me is that almost every year is to cut 50% of that spend, keeping the same volume by doing this test. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what was really challenging about that, obviously, is um, it can be quite difficult even when you're doing something that drastic to actually measure the incrementality, right? Or the negative incrementality. Um, because ultimately, you know, you have, you build a model that helps kind of predict what your organics are doing. Um, that model has a certain kind of error margin that it has. And realistically, you need that margin to be tighter than whatever your paid ratio is. So if you don't actually have you know, enough scale in a certain market with your paid activity, if it doesn't make up a big enough proportion of your overall, um, of your overall activity, even if you do see a drop, it might just be within the, the kind of um, the margin of error. And it's really difficult, not really an efficient way to actually drive um, long-term incrementality research. Yeah. Um, Malik, how did you adapt to the IDFA reality? I mean, it's, this is a tough one for me to answer because um, just of the timing of my own career. So you know, I left King um, June 2020 to go to Apple. So obviously a very interesting moment to, first of all, leave a company like King and second of all, to join Apple of all people. Um, so I think I'll, I'll split it into two parts. I think, first of all, like if I look at all the work that King did to prepare for this, um, I think King was better prepared than, than most other companies. Yeah, I remember even in the years leading up, um, especially in like 2019, we were doing a ton of work around how we run campaigns that target limited ad track users. So um, that was already a big focus for us way before um, iOS 14. I think we, you know, we kind of knew the writing was on the wall and we wanted to make sure that we were prepared for that. Second, you know, we were already you know, building, like you'd mentioned before, kind of, um, probabilistic and you know, causal impact models that helped us understand value as opposed to just attributed um, like installs and, and transactions um, that I think set the company up a little bit better at that point. Um, but then kind of moving to, to Apple was a really strange experience because, well, first of all, like um, 
you know, everyone in the industry was talking about such a fundamental shift that was obviously driven by, by Apple. And, um, you know, being at the core of the, the company, I think people expected that us, like as Apple Arcade advertisers, were completely clued in to what was going on. And the reality is like, that's not how things work at Apple. Everything is completely siloed and we were getting the same information that everyone else was getting at the same amount of time. Um, so um, in terms of how I adapted, I kind of skipped the, the hardest part, I will say. And now, you know, at, at Moshi, we're really building out a, what I would say is a more holistic framework for measurement that takes into account, not just attribution um, that we can do today, but different tools. Um, so, you know, using tools like incremental to look at the causal impact, looking at the high level uh, KPIs to try to understand, you know, what our cash flow looks like as a business. Um, looking at other predictive models that we build internally to try to understand where value is being created and really just trying to create a holistic toolkit um, that helps us understand what our marketing does. Cool. That's actually very related to kind of like the next question. So Moshi monetizes using subscription. Now with yep. King, obviously, it's like the definition of premium, I would say. Um, and with Apple Arcade, it was also subscription. But like how different is it? to market freemium versus subscription? You know, in a way it's, um, it's a different set of challenges, right? Like I think, uh, I think the biggest challenge we always had at King was really a measurement challenge, right? Like how do we take those early events and really predict what a small portion of our user base is going to do however many months ahead, whatever our payback period was. So it was all about projecting the LTV of a user in an accurate way. And once we did that, we had all the other tools to really scale up our, our campaigns and, and optimize in the right direction. I think with subscriptions, it's, it's a little bit different because you basically have to force yourself to create a value proposition that's compelling from the very first moment because you first have to convince people, uh, even if it is a, a subscription with some sort of trial, uh, like we had at Arcade and like we have at Moshi, you still have to you know, convince them to make some sort of soft purchase decision. Um, they're ultimately you know, committing to, uh, to pay the subscription fee at the end of that trial, even if they you know, may decide to cancel during the trial period. So they're still making that purchase decision in their mind, even if it's just for a trial. On the other hand, after that, the measurement challenge, I think it becomes a little bit easier um, because it's just focusing on retention. So that's the biggest difference I see is the measurement is actually a little bit easier but the, the story that you have to tell, the value that you have to sell becomes much more challenging with subscriptions. And I guess pricing becomes also a bigger challenge with subscription. It does. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm still not convinced that pricing is the biggest challenge when it comes to subscriptions. And I think ultimately, like, you know, there's a relatively standard rate that most companies tend to charge uh, for like a monthly subscription for a content-based platform, there's not a huge amount of variation there. I think what's more interesting, and maybe this falls under what you mean by pricing, is you know what the subscription length is. Like, do you default to a monthly subscription? Do you really encourage people to move towards a longer-term sub, like an annual or even a lifetime uh, subscription or something like that? Um, that's what's I find really really interesting. And you know, again, going back to you know uh, whether you should use established playbooks or not. Um, I think a lot of companies end up just following what other people do instead of thinking about how does my platform work? What does the content look like? And what's the cadence of how people use the app? And based on that, what makes sense for, for our users? 
By the way, again, not, not fully uh, understanding the subscription mechanics within iOS. Um, like now with all the like Epic versus Apple and so on, are you really able to test out various subscription models and even create like test test audience or test groups? Like this user will get these options, these users will get these options and compare? Um, if, if you are, it's not something we're currently doing. Um, I don't really think you can. Maybe you can test it at a country level, but I could be completely wrong about this. Um, I think where you can test things is obviously, you know, you can use web as an interesting testing ground for, for these kind of things, just to understand, you know, what different SKUs are, are performing best. Um, you know, we've seen it work quite well for things like reactivation. So, you know, if we find, if we do a post uh, churn survey and find that a user um, churned because of the pricing or because they weren't using the app enough, trying to, um, you know, promote a different alternative for them and seeing what actually gets them to maybe reactivate is something that is, is quite interesting, but um, no, I don't think that the, that sort of granularity of testing is kind of the way that, um, or is as strong as it could be. On the other hand, I'm also not a huge believer in doing ultra granular price tests like this. You know, I think that ultimately it can be quite confusing for the user. So I would say, think about what makes sense, like from the, the standpoint of what your app provides, how people are using it and make your best bet. And if you want to make a change, you know, make a change at a point in time and look at what happens before and after that. Mm, cool. Um, let's talk about incrementality. So how do you define incrementality in marketing? And the follow-up question would be, do you think incrementality in marketing is the holy grail when it comes to marketing results? So I think incrementality in marketing for me is, you know, relatively clear cut in terms of what the definition is, but it's more of a mindset. So how would I define it? You know, incrementality in marketing is really, does every dollar that you spend on marketing deliver um, more than a dollar in terms of positive revenue for the company or positive profit? So really, is the, is the investment that you are driving actually generating results for the business that exceed what you're investing? And I think a lot of the times, um, that's something that people don't really focus on, but ultimately it comes back to how you actually measure that value. And I think to answer the second part of the question, yeah, I think it's kind of the holy grail, but it should also be the starting point. Like if you're a, a early stage business and you know, you're spending and your attributed revenue is great, but you're not actually growing, you're probably going to burn out of cash really, really quickly. So I think it's a fundamental concept in marketing and something that should be at the forefront of how you approach your, your measurement framework from day one. Actually, I, I cannot remember, but recently I heard of like a company completely going under because their marketing efforts were very off to the point where they thought that their marketing uh, effort is is paying off. Um, and by the time they understood that it's completely waste of money and whatever they were doing was completely redundant, was too late in the company's lifespan, like cash flow wise. But how, how does that even happen? Like, I mean, this is the thing, right? I think this is actually where the kind of myopia that you can get from just focusing on attributed revenue or attributed installs or whatever that KPI might be. Um, yeah, it can be so dangerous. But you know, ultimately, when what we do is we look at probably three or four different things on a regular basis. 
we use attributed um, installs, attributed events as kind of the, the steering mechanism, right? To steer the, the path that we're taking as a company to optimize our, our campaigns as best as we can. We look at the incremental uh, revenue that we generate um, from specific tactics, from specific channels um, in order to allocate budgets. But then we also look at the overall health of the business. Like we look at um, what the payback period is on our overall marketing investment. We look at the LTV to CAC to understand whether it's something that's sustainable. And we really just have to incorporate, you know, can we as a company actually afford this level of growth? And if not, you know, is it something that we need to rethink in terms of our, our overall structure? I think that that's the right way to to go. And by the way, I, like I, I do have even a case study of a customer who basically told us, "Hey, we we are foreseeing a cash flow issue. We need help to get to um, to optimize our budget allocation based on faster yield of mm. returns." Which I mean, yeah, I can I can see that like in a certain environment, right, where if you're trying to win market share relatively quickly. Um, without burning through whatever you know cash you have in the bank, um, I can see that makes sense actually. But long term, it's still probably not the the right approach, right? I think if you can find a level of scale that is sustainable for you, where you can grow um, month over month and you know, drive you know, ultimately LTV that exceeds what you're paying to acquire a new user, um, that's kind of the the holy grail. Cool. Now, the next question is a bit more of a lightning round, I would say. It's like uh, we came up with a bunch of terms flying around, I would say, our industry or general tech industry. Um, wanted your perspective if something is an actual trend people should be looking into or industry BS. Media mix modeling. Um, very important. Definitely something that you should have a good concept of and ideally try to incorporate into your measurement stack. Not something which you can use just on for day-to-day -day optimization, but really good for understanding the overall value of different channels. Cool. NFT. Uh, very interesting tech hasn't really found the right product market fit. I think I'm convinced that there is a world where this is going to become a core part of what we do in our day-to-day, -day, but we still have to figure out exactly how that's going to work and very related, the metaverse? Pretty much the same, I would say. Like, I, I, I believe in, in the technology, but none of the current use cases have convinced me yet. Cross-platform marketing. I mean, 100%. Like, I think, um, again, if you think about uh, the first principles of marketing, right? Like, for a lot of products, the purchase decision is probably made over multiple touch points. And I think you do need to reach people where they are and that's cross-platform. Now it depends on the product, but for the vast majority of actual purchase decisions, 100%. Cool. And kind of like related, unrelated influencer marketing. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm a huge advocate of this. Uh, I think we're going through like marketing in general goes through all these cycles where certain ways of telling the story become more powerful over time. And I think right now we're in this moment where we want to hear other people tell us about why something is valuable. So I think influencer marketing, but also just user generated content um, as a standalone is something that's very, very important. You know, it's funny, it's like um, roughly 17 years ago, um, much earlier in my career, 
uh, user-generated content was typically something that you got banned if you ran on. Uh, so again, working for a British company, mainly with agencies, whenever ads were presented on websites with uh, user-generated content, we would sometimes lose the customer as a result. Yeah. Like this was pre-Facebook. This is during the days of MySpace and Bebo. Um, yeah. I think that there's, I mean, I know this is a little bit of a lightning round, but I think this is a really interesting area because I do feel like it might be slightly under-regulated. Like if you look at the way that especially e-commerce brands today are doing things with UGC, um, you, know, you can go onto Twitter and find 15 random UGC creators who will sell you just like make a video for you for $100 or $200 or something like that. And will say whatever you want them to say. Uh, and that's something which, you know, is probably not the, in customers' interests. Um, so I think there's going to be a certain amount of regulation that either the platforms or some other body needs to do over time. Yeah, look at the fire Festival. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh... <laughs> I have, I have. Yeah. Um, it's a dangerous place, but I think you should at least be thinking about what makes sense for you as a brand. Cool. Malik, if people want to find you uh, digitally, ideally, not stalk you, uh, where can they do that? <laughs> Um, I, I think the best place to reach out to me is probably LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, but I'm not very active. So one of those two places, um, probably LinkedIn is the best place to reach me. Cool. Uh, I'm going to drop your um, LinkedIn profile link on the description of this podcast. Awesome. And Malik, thank you so much for your time. As always, it's really been a pleasure. I'm, I'm kind of glad we went into philosophizing uh, mode because that's, I think, kind of like the nature of these conversations often. Uh, I agree. Um, I think this was, uh, well, first of all, thanks again, Maurer. I really enjoyed this. Um, and yeah, if anyone else wants to philosophize about marketing, reach out to me and let me know. Cool. Have a lovely rest of the day. You too. Bye, Maurer.